The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Amos. Amos chapter 5, beginning at verse 18. We'll be reading through chapter 6, verse 1. The word of the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sicketh, your king, and Kion, your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Here endeth the old covenant reading. The new covenant reading is taken from the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 16. We'll be reading through verse 24 this morning. Jesus is speaking. We pick up in verse 16, the word of our God. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Please keep your place here as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. 
Indifference to Jesus is idolatry. Let me say that again because this runs so counter to our age where people think it's okay as long as you're just kind of polite about things and you can be polite and indifferent. Indifference to Jesus is idolatry. And we could add that this particular indifference has behind it a genuine hostility toward the living God, but it's a hostility that doesn't have the courage of its convictions to come out into the open. Last week, Jesus spoke to us about the kingdom of heaven suffering violence and the violence taking the kingdom of heaven by force. John, after all, has been thrown into prison by Herod, and he is about to lose his head. And so if you tell the story, and you make a movie, the characters like Herod and Pontius Pilate and the wicked high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, they get all the star billing in most of the time. But the truth is, they are just a tiny portion of the people in ancient Israel or in the Roman Empire. It's the masses of people that Jesus now turns his attention to. This morning, Jesus is speaking to and about the masses. And the problem with the masses is not so much their open hostility. In fact, the crowd he's speaking to are out listening to him. The problem with the masses is their indifference to Jesus. That they like having their ears tickled. But they're not willing to turn and commit their lives, body and soul, to Jesus Christ as their faithful Savior. Like John the Baptist, Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I say like John the Baptist, um, because actually the wording of their initial message is identical. But there is a difference here. John comes preaching that people should repent, that is, be turned back to God, to make way the, the, straight the way for the coming Messiah. But Jesus, when he calls us to repent, is not simply saying, get right with God. He's saying, be turned to me. The way that you will be reconciled to God is to be turned to me and to place your trust in me as the Son of Man, who is also the Son of God. Since Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, a refusal to entrust ourselves to Jesus is in fact to hold something else as being more important than the living God. That is, indifference to Jesus Christ is idolatry, and it is an idolatry that brings about terrible consequences. We're going to look at this morning's passage under three main headings. First, childish rebellion. Second, the vindication of wisdom. And third, idolatry has its consequences. Uh, let me give those to you again. First, childish rebellion. Second, the vindication of wisdom. And third, idolatry has its consequences. We begin with a very sharp rebuke from our Lord, not to Herod, right? Not to the high priest but to the crowd. Jesus compares them to petulant uh, children. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. Jesus says, But to what shall I compare this generation? 
It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Here's a question. What does the Lord think when he thinks about you? What do you want the Lord to think when he thinks about you? The crowd following Jesus has just heard him describe all of his, well not all of his, some of his remarkable messianic miracles that he's performed. So that the messengers could go back to John with this evidence that he was the Messiah who was sent by God. That he fulfilled the prophecies particularly of Isaiah, but of all the old covenant prophets. And Jesus sends these messengers back to John in order to strengthen John's faith. But then Jesus says something really remarkable. Jesus says, you know about John, what he was like? He was a prophet. And I tell you, more than a prophet. In fact, up to this point in history, not a single person born of woman is greater than John. He is the greatest human being who's ever lived up to this point. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And while that's ringing in their ears, they must have been wondering, what's Jesus going to say next? What's he going to say to us? Uh, Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. If you were there, would you be thinking Jesus is going to say, that's you? Right? You who are following me, you who are listening to me, as great as John is, you are even greater in your privilege. Well, maybe you would have thought that, maybe not. But you would have expected Jesus, at least if you went back in time as an American, you would have expected Jesus to say something really nice to you as the crowd who's out there following him. After all, that, that's the way we treat people. Right? Powerful people in our day, politicians running for office, They flatter the crowds. Um, Think about American politicians. When is the last time you've ever heard an American politician blame the American people for anything? You don't do that. They're trying to get your vote. So, you know, blame the Chinese? Sure. Blame the Mexicans? Certainly, right? Blame the tobacco companies and big oil? Why not? But the masses of the American people are always completely good Because the politicians want your vote. Well, here's the big news. Jesus isn't running for office. See, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, whether you vote for him or not. And therefore, Jesus tells you the truth. The truth about himself and the truth about us. Sometimes that truth stings. Such as when Jesus compares his own generation to petulant children. To refuse to embrace Jesus after you hear or see the evidence of who he is is not to maintain some sort of detached sophistication. You know, I can kind of glide over the surface of things because I don't have to be committed to anything. To refuse to embrace Jesus after you hear or see the evidence of who he is is childish rebellion. Now, there's a world of difference between being childlike and childish. Uh, We sometimes get confused over that because the Bible does call us to a childlike faith. A childlike faith means when I consider God my father, 
Just as a young child has complete confidence in what his or her parents say, complete confidence that his or her parents are going to take care of them, we ought to be treating God that way and even more. God is the perfect father, right? He, he always loves his people with an everlasting and perfect love, so we should have a childlike faith. But we are warned over and over again not to be childish in the way that we approach the living God. Childish rebellion is like, um, I hope I don't spark any bad memories for any of you, but you know, you know sometimes children, they just, you know, no! Right? I, I've never had this food before, but I've already decided I don't like it. I will not eat this food. No! Well, you know, people actually do that with God. Isn't that shocking? But it's the truth. See, just as the child wants the parents to feed the child on his terms, not on theirs, masses of people throughout history are only willing to accept God if God will meet him on their terms rather than on God's terms. And that childish rebellion is ugly and it is idolatry. In this case, Jesus illustrates the childish rebellion of that generation by a little parable. A group of children are sitting in a marketplace. Uh, perhaps they're bored, but it turns out that in the ancient world, when they weren't doing business in the marketplaces, it was one of the places kids would just hang out and play games. And so they're out there, but nobody's playing anything. And somebody says, hey, I know, let's play wedding. Right? Paul could be the groom. Mary could be the bride. Joseph could be the best man. We could all have parts. And they go, eh. That's silly. That's frivolous stuff. I mean, you know, that's for the girls, the boys are probably saying. We don't want to do that. And so someone else breaks out a flute. And, and, you know, they've heard the professional mourners. And they start playing a dirge. Okay, we'll be serious then. Let's let's do funeral. Let's do serious stuff. Bad things have happened. And everybody says, nah, way too austere. And nobody will play. That's the sort of generation Jesus is dealing with. Jesus says, that is what this generation is like. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, you know, for a time, John had a massive following. I mean, people went out by the thousands into the wilderness. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, going and staying at the Sheraton. They went out into this barren land to hear John preach and to be baptized by him. But now John's in prison, about to lose his head. And it seems that the number of truly devoted followers of John was much smaller than the crowds who just wanted to experience that one religious thing. People are turning against him, distancing themselves from him, perhaps not wanting to share his fate. You know, that happens in uh, circles is when people see a rising star, they say, I'm going to hitch my wagon to that star. But when that, that star falls, in this case, John's being thrown in prison, they're going, you know, I don't want to follow John quite that far. And so they say things. You know, um, John was quite a fanatic. 
You can imagine people saying that to each other. Uh, he wore hair shirts. He went out and he ate wild locusts for food. I mean, that's kind of crazy if you really think about it. And um, he acted like he was the one spokesman from God, that he was special. Tell you the truth, I think he was a bit off his rocker. Or perhaps he was even possessed by a demon leading Israel in crazy ways. Isn't that a remarkable turn of events? For a brief and shining moment, there was a great expectation that John the Baptist was a true prophet. In fact, people wondered if he himself might be the Messiah, and he had to deny that, right? That, that, that he wasn't even worthy Don tied Jesus' sandals. But now large swaths of the Jewish population have decided that John was rather too harsh for their tastes. By contrast, Jesus seemed like he liked a good party a little bit too much. I mean, for respectable religion, you know. You gotta have a Messiah, has gotta uphold certain standards. He doesn't really seem like a serious rabbi the way that he parties let alone the Messiah of Israel. Um, should say that when people identify Jesus as a glutton and a drunkard, they may actually be appealing to something in the law of Deuteronomy that is uh, terrifying if they were actually doing this. In, um, well, let me just read this passage. I'm going to read a short passage from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 through 21 just ask you to see if you can get the connection between what Jesus is saying here about the crowd saying he, he, he's a drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners and what this law actually requires in the Old Testament. Moses writes, If a man is a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Did you catch that? See, the language is actually, it's actually not quite the same language. It is in the translation, but it's very, very similar language. And if the crowd is saying that in their hearts about Jesus, they're actually saying that the Son of God the eternally beloved and perfect Son of God who came into this world is worthy of death according to the Old Testament law. He is a drunkard and a glutton. Uh, that's certainly possible, and a number of very fine commentators think that's the way to take this passage. I think it's a little too theologically loaded. Um, for one thing, this term uh, that's translated by the ESV drunkard uh, really just means someone who drinks wine. In the context, drinks wine to excess, but someone who drinks wine. And also, the contrast here is not simply about Jesus doing this, but it's Jesus and John who are living foolish lives. And so I think we want to read this passage as being the opposite of John. John's austere. Jesus is a little loosey-goosey, a little, a little bit of a party animal, as rabbis go. 
And you can imagine the conversations going something like this. You know, you listen to Jesus, and boy, does he put demands on our lives. Just the other day, I heard him telling this rich young ruler that if he wanted to have eternal life, he had to sell everything he had, give it to the poor, and come and follow Jesus. But then you know what? Jesus turns right around, and I, I see him drinking wine and feasting. And not with respectable people, let me tell you. With tax collectors and other sinners. He's laying this heavy burden on us while he's just living it up. Doesn't that actually fit what Jesus is saying here? Right? People are going, I'm not going to follow this Jesus. It's way, way too loose, not respectable. I want my religion to be respectable. You know, nice churches, stained glass windows. Singing's not too loud, not too soft. Respectable religion. That, that's what people were looking after. And Jesus doesn't fit the bill. Uh, William Hendrickson puts it like this. Jesus is telling the crowd, this is the way that you critics are behaving. You are being childish. You are frivolous and acting irresponsibly. You need to be filled with enthusiasm about John. I'm sorry, used to be filled with enthusiasm about John. He actually should still be. At least you stood in awe of him and did not find fault with his austerity and called to repentance. But now you say, he is too harsh and unsociable. His message is too severe. Why, he must be possessed. But you are also turning against me, the Son of Man. You are pointing the finger at me and saying, though he demands self-denial in others, he himself is a glutton and a drinker, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, of course, the point here, please don't miss this point, the point isn't that people believe any of these criticisms of John or Jesus. You know, that is not the way people actually think. The point is, these are rationalizations for not repenting, right? People have started with, I am not going to change my life. I am not going to be turned from the path I'm going on to follow Jesus. And now I'm going to backfill in the excuses for why I'm not doing it. And you should realize people do that all the time in their lives. But these are awful, awful rationalizations, the people here are not merely guilty of childish behavior. They are guilty of childish rebellion. <clears throat> and while there's a distinct historical application of these words to the people in Christ's day, he is after all speaking about this generation, I, I trust you realize there's a theological truth that's going to hold true from then all the way up till Christ's second coming. People... Masses of people regularly expect that Jesus will be a consumer product. And if you want me to follow Jesus, well, you better tailor things to my taste. You know, if you're out sharing the gospel in our own day, this has changed through the decades. Um, well, the issue hasn't changed. The excuses have changed. But if you share the gospel with people today, um, you're going to have people going, well, if you want me to be a Christian, you know, um, well, I'm not going to embrace Jesus if homo he says homosexuality is wrong or coveting is wrong or holding on to bitterness. Well, people won't actually say that, but that could be true, is wrong, right? They, they, they already have the box they want Jesus to fit in, 
And if the Jesus you tell them about doesn't fit that box, apart from a work of God's sovereign grace in their lives, they are going to hold on to their box and reject Jesus Christ. And that's idolatry. Right? They may not say really horrible things about Jesus. They'll, they'll, they'll save that for Christians. You know, you guys are bigots for believing what Jesus said, but Jesus is a good guy. But um, they're going to insist that Jesus meet them on their terms, not on his. But because Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, he insists that we meet him on his terms. Beloved, Jesus Christ remains King of kings and Lord of lords no matter how we respond to him. If we engage in childish rebellion, what are we doing? We are heaping up wrath for ourselves against the day of wrath. You know, these excuses are not going to hold any water when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. We are heaping up wrath for ourselves against the day of wrath, but we are not harming Jesus at all. Now, Jesus is going to say more about this in just a moment. And I want you to mark how strong the language is that Jesus uses. Right? This, this is not Jonathan Edwards, this is Jesus Christ. But if we bow the knee to Jesus, if we do what he's calling us to do, and we, we're turned to him on his own terms, Jesus will do the most extraordinary thing. He not only will wash away all our guilt, he will bring us into his own family and consider you to be his own beloved sister and his own beloved brother. Right? There's two paths. One leads to life. One leads to eternal judgment. The masses thought that John the Baptist and Jesus, in different ways, were frankly proclaiming and living a rather foolish approach to life. And, you know, if you take away the religious goggles through which you sometimes read the New Testament, or the way you sometimes hear the New Testament, you can realize that People in our own day would say the same thing if they didn't realize it was coming from Jesus. Um, someone slaps you on a, your cheek, turn the other one to him. I mean, what kind of schmuck does that to someone who's attacking them? A, a Roman soldier compels you to carry his pack for a mile and you voluntarily carry it for two? I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, the crowds would have thought that's just not practical. Right? Living life the way Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount is frankly foolish. And the only thing that's as foolish as that is what John was saying out in the wilderness. Right? Be totally changed from who you are. You need to die to your old self and to receive new life from above. Or as Jesus would later say, you must be born again. It's foolish, isn't it? Well, that's what the crowds were saying. Beloved, that's actually, even if it's not verbalized that way, what a great deal of our neighbors are saying as well. Our Lord's radical choice to give his life away and his call upon us to give our lives away for the sake of the gospel will always seem absurd to the self-absorbed of this world. But you should realize, of course, that that's precisely the way that Jesus brings about salvation for everybody. And in calling us to give away our lives for the sake of the gospel, 
He's filling our lives with meaning, calling us into his very own mission to reconcile the world to God. Two paths. One looks foolish in the eyes of the world, but is actually God's wisdom. One's foolish in the eyes of God. Which will you choose? At the final judgment, the destinations of these choices will be clear to everyone. Yet Jesus does not want us to wait until the end of time to know that the two ways of life lead to diametrically different ends. See, Jesus is not offering just one enlightened path. It might be good for you, but if you take many other paths that are going to lead to happiness and fullness and fruitful lives and good eternities, Jesus is offering you the path, the way, the life. We cannot say no thank you to Jesus and then go on to live happily ever after Indifference to Jesus is idolatry. And according to Jesus, this idolatry leads to terrible consequences. I have titled this section, Idolatry Has Its Consequences. But what I want you to be gripped by is just how horrible those consequences truly are according to God himself. Verses 20 through 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now this language is evocative even to us, but it is hard for us to fully enter into what those words must have sounded like to first century Jews. Uh, Jesus mentions three very prominent towns there in Galilee, including Capernaum, his own adopted hometown, and Bethsaida, um, you know, the, the town of Andrew and Peter, right? And Jesus has done great works through these towns, mighty miracles, and the crowds have come out and they seem to be embracing them. And Jesus says, you know what? On the day of judgment, it's going to be worse for you than it was for Tyre and Sidon. Do you know how bad Tyre and Sidon were? Isaiah prophesies about their destruction in great detail. Ezekiel gives three chapters, I think it's 26 through 28, three chapters of God pronouncing his woes on these cities. They were so proud, they were very wealthy. They were proud of their wealth. They thought they were better than everyone else. Right? They lifted themselves up. And God says, I am going to bring you down into the dust. How in the world could it be worse for Jewish cities than for them? And if you've been with us in the evening, you'll know that Jezebel was a Sidonian, right, from Sidon. Uh, this horrible, wicked, immoral queen who actually brings Baal worship into Israel. And Jesus is saying, 
you think it's bad for them, it's going to be worse for you because you're rejecting me. What, what this means, of course, is, is to whom much is given, much is required. Uh, Sidon and Tyre hadn't seen Christ's miracles. They hadn't heard his preaching, right? They, they hadn't heard him proclaim good news to the poor. And therefore, they did not have as much guilt as these people who were children of the covenant. And yet, as bad as it will be for Sidon, for uh, Tyre and um, Sidon, Jesus brings up another contrast, but it's even more striking. It'll be better for Sodom than it was for you. I I can't come up with a good analogy, because as soon as you go down that Hitler road, it really distracts everybody, right? But you have to think about Sodom in the, the biblical narrative. Sodom is the very nadir of immorality. Sodom was so wicked that God literally rained down fire and brimstone from heaven to wipe Sodom and Gomorrah into the dust and burn them up. And then he covered them over with the Dead Sea so that they'll never be built again. And Jesus actually says, it'll be better for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What could possibly be worse than living like a rebellious, wicked, horrible sinner in Sodom? Here's what Jesus says, being a respectable, religious person who clearly has portrayed before your eyes who I am and who refuses to repent. Beloved, that's not just true in the first century, that's true today. It is worse to hear about Jesus Christ, have him clearly portrayed to you as the Son of God who has given his life for, to save people from their sins, it is worse to hear that and reject it than it was to live as one of the most abominable sinners in all of history. Beloved, this is a time where we're reminded in R.C. Sproul's words that Almighty God plays for keeps. This is not just something Jesus is saying to first century Jews in Palestine These words have been written down for our instruction. We cannot keep our heads down and hide. God is not going to be impressed if we're simply polite and nod lightly toward Jesus without ever objecting to him or, or, or running around trying to convince people that Jesus is not Lord. We cannot keep our heads down and hide by being polite about Jesus without bowing the knee to him. Indifference to Jesus Christ is idolatry, and it is an idolatry that brings about horrendous consequences. Refusing to repent is crass rebellion against the command of Jesus Christ. Refusing to repent puts a person under the condemnation of the living God. Refusing to be turned and to entrust yourself to Jesus Christ and to follow him, even if you try to pass it off as mere indifference, is nothing short of idolatry, and it is idolatry with terrifying consequences. But here's the good news. As dark and as ugly as the refusal to repent is, repentance is every bit as beautiful and bright. See, when by God's grace you turn to Jesus Christ 
and you embrace him as your own Lord and Savior, you are not simply moving from being bad to being good. Although I should add, that is actually a consequence of repentance. But see, repentance is about apprehending the mercy of God in Jesus Christ and turning to him and in him finding life in all its fullness. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In him is light. In him is life. And that life is the light of men. That light is still shining in the darkness. And the darkness will never put it out. Amen.